you'd be opening your Bibles, we're going to begin tonight in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll read that passage in just a few moments. It was Henry Ford who on one occasion said, I may not have all the answers, but I know where to go to get them. On another occasion, something that happened at his assembly line as he was uh, producing cars and it stopped working. He contacted an engineer, he came in and he worked for a little while and didn't take him long and he got the factory to moving again and working again and the bill was $10,000 which was an astounding amount of money especially at that time. Mr. Ford became upset and he said, what do you mean $10,000? He said, what would you do? He said, well, this button, I pushed it because it had been uh, something that happened and it had uh, like a breaker type thing. So I pushed the button and things started working again. He said, you pushed a button for $10,000? He said, no. He said, it was $100 for pushing the button. It was the 9900 for knowing which button to push. And so... Uh, I don't know which one of those events occurred first, but I think Henry Ford came to the proper understanding of where to go to get the information. And that's something that we need to understand in our lives. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. We're going to read through 35, but we're going to notice the balance of the chapter as we discuss the passage. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? I think we all have questions in this life to which we would like to have an answer. You know, there are some questions that we may not be able to find an answer to. There are some things that we simply may never know in this life. I read a list of some questions that uh, some author compiled that evidently had no answer. The question was, how come wrong answers are never busy? Or wrong numbers? Why are wrong numbers never busy? Why doesn't Tarzan have a beard? And I remember growing up watching uh, the black and white. Tarzan never had a beard. Looks to me like he would have. Why is it called lipstick if you can still move your lips? Why does night fall, but it is day that breaks? Why is the third hand on the watch called the second hand? I can remember thinking of that as I was growing up. Can you buy an entire chess set at a pawn shop? How do you write zero? in Roman numerals. And why is the time of day with the slowest traffic called rush hour? There are some things we're just never going to know in this life, but there are some things that we can certainly know if we know how to find the answer and where to go. And salvation happens to be one of them. And that's, of course, what Paul was talking about. His question in reality was how can we be saved and how can we maintain that in this life? How can we continue to be faithful through all the things that happen and still, on the, our last day in earth, or when, it, when the Lord comes back, whichever one comes first, how can I be found faithful? I don't know that it's enough to know the right answer, 
alone, I think we need to understand to know what questions to ask. What's the right question? It was told that learning usually passes through three stages. At first, we learn the right answer. Then we learn the right questions. And finally, we kind of discover which questions are worth asking. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. And again, of course, Paul was asking the right question. He gave us the source where to go. Of course, that source is God. But the problem is in the world, people most usually go to the wrong source, don't they? They've got questions about spiritual things or other things in life, and they want to go talk to someone who does not have the answers because they fail to go to God for those answers. They fail to go to the Bible. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to do, isn't it? Satan wants us to believe we can receive the correct answers to the correct questions by going to some other source other than God. And a lot of the times, he wants us to believe we can go to him as a source. That may not be in the very front of our minds that it's to Satan we're going, but when someone goes to someone who promotes what Satan is promoting, that's the wrong source, isn't it? The title of the sermon this evening is Satan Says He Has the Answers. Satan Says He Has the Answers. Now, at one time, Paul had to address a problem in Corinth. He was questioned about his apostleship, and he had to defend that apostleship. There were false prophets. Uh, They even called themselves apostles of Christ who came in and began to disrupt his work. And Paul made a statement, he said, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. He says, and no marvel. Don't be shocked, don't be surprised, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Now, that's what I'm talking about. People, the majority of the people in the world go to Satan for the answers. They don't realize it's Satan, but it is someone who's promoting something that Satan endorses. And that's the wrong source, isn't it? Denominations, those are the wrong sources to find questions concerning salvation. Satan won't tell you that he's behind that, but he is behind that. He's behind any kind of a religion that is not God's religion. So he wants us to go somewhere besides the Bible to get our answers. And that's exactly what he's been doing from the very time that he entered into this world, he wanted people to go somewhere besides God's Word. And we see it in the garden, don't we? He convinced the first couple to do something that was in opposition to God's Word. We see in Genesis chapter 6 that he had convinced the majority of the world, minus eight folks, to find out the answers to their questions and to get uh, uh, approval of their lifestyles through someone other than God. And we know the result of that. So in our passage tonight, there are some very important questions which Satan has answered. He's given the answer. Now we need to be able to look through what he stated and we need to understand where he is wrong. Now Paul asked these questions. He asked them in a rhetorical sense. And so uh, when, we, when uh, someone uses rhetoric, the answer is obvious, right? And so that's what Paul's done. But Paul asked them because Satan had been answering them. And he'd been answering them through false teachers and anyone else who opposed God. And so let's begin tonight by looking at these questions. Now the first two questions 
that Paul asked have to do with our protector. That's our first point. He wants us to draw a conclusion. The very beginning of this passage, he says, what can we conclude? What should we then say to these things? What's the answer to what Paul had been talking about? He had just pointed out how all blessings are found in Jesus, how the future and salvation is found in Christ, that we need to be able to stand justified in the sight of God. And we can go back to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. He told them, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He expressed a similar thought to the Ephesian brethren. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So we put those two together, and we want to ask the question, well, how do we walk after the Spirit? What does God expect from us? Well, it begins by deliberate study of the Word, doesn't it? We have to understand what God wants. Where do we go? We go to God. We don't go to someone else who has given the wrong answers. That's what Satan wants. We need to go to God. Now, we always need to remember, God is where we find the answers. And Paul made a couple of statements, one to the Ephesian brethren, one to the Colossian brethren. Be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Colossians 3.16, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. That's how... We're filled with the Spirit. That's how we walk in the Spirit. That's how we walk in the light, walk after Christ. We search out the answers, and God has provided that for us because He is our protector. And that ought to be the conclusion that all people come to when we begin to sit down and clearly look at what God has left for us to see. David proclaimed to God, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee, Psalm 119.11. So it's very clear God has always expected people to hide His Word in their hearts. Now, what did Satan? how did Satan answer that uh, question? What's the conclusion? Well, Satan all along said, Hey, there's no hope in Christ. There's no way to please God. Well, you can't do a thing to make God happy. He's angry all the time. He can't protect you from sin. He can't protect you from yourself. He can't protect you from those who sin and it affects your life. He wants us to believe that. But that's not the case, is it? What's the conclusion we come to after learning all blessings are in Christ? Well, that we need to trust God. We need to be in Him if we're going to be pleasing to Him. So that's the conclusion, right? That's the conclusion. Then in his second question, Paul guides the reader to the comparison. He says, if God's for us, who can be against us? Remember, what's the conclusion? We need to be in Christ. We need to be in God. We need to be able to be somewhere where we can gain those spiritual blessings. We need to be pleasing to God. We need to be justified in His sight. Therefore, if God is with us and we choose to be faithful to Him, who can be against us? I want us to notice, though, we see this word if, and a lot of times we use that word if to mean, well, maybe or maybe not, right? If God is for us, that means He might not be for us, right? Well, that's not what Paul intended. That word if, we might better state it because God is for us, because He's basing on what He just said. The conclusion is we need to be in God. And if we're in God, or because we're in God, who can defeat us? Who can be against us? Of course, the answer is no one. Now, what does Satan say? 
Satan says, you don't have to worry about anyone because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anyway. Why worry about whether God's happy with you? Why worry about whether God is displeased with you? You don't even know if God is real in this life, so why bother with God? And if He is real, He doesn't care anything about you. This idea of deism, God created, there was a higher power, He created the world, the people in it, and then He just kind of left us to figure it out on our own. That's deism. That's, that's totally contrary to what the Bible says. He wants us to believe there is no need for God. But if we believe in Him, He can't help us anyway. He can't help us. He can't forgive us because our sins are too bad. That's the answer that Satan gives. But if God is for us, and we do the things He's asked us to do, it doesn't matter that Satan's against us because we can defeat Him. We can continue to defeat Him. We can get up. And we can keep going, even when we make mistakes in this life. Now, in these first two questions, we see God is our protector. But there's one aspect of that second question that deals with our predicament as well. That's our second point. God is our protector. Why do we usually need a protector? Because there's a problem, right? There's someone wants to harm us. Well, the, the world has found itself in a predicament for which there is no answer, right? So how was it that God protects us through our predicament. Well, it all goes back to the sacrifice, doesn't it? It goes back to what He did for us. That in itself ought to get us to be to looking around and saying, we can't listen to these things that people say about God. Notice what God has done for us. He's given us everything we need. In verse 32, Paul wrote that He spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How can we be sure God is for us? He gave us His Son. He gave us a way out of our predicament, right? From eternity, He proposed and purposed to save man through Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3, 9-11. through 11. God knew we were going to find ourselves in this terrible predicament from which we needed to be protected, and so He made plans and provision to take care of that, right? But what does Satan say? Satan says he has the answer for it, right? You're not in a predicament. It's a figment of your imagination. That's not going to happen. I made a talked about an interview I'd uh, watched one time of an individual speaking of another person and they were having some problems in his life and the guy said, I'm not changing for anybody. So that's what Satan wants us to believe, right? We're not changing for anybody. You don't have to change for God. If God loved you, you'd be okay. He, you ought to be happy. He ought to want you to be happy after all. He chose to create the world. We see that throughout all the denominations in the world, right? I was just noticing, doing a little research for our uh, church history class, and the, the denominations of the world have almost wholly embraced, except for a few, wholly embraced uh, acceptance of all manner of problems. Homosexuality, bring, bring it into the church, the quote church. Satan says, that's right. God wants you to be happy, right? God wants you to be happy. That's Satan's answer. But if we ignore God, if we claim He doesn't exist, and if He does, He doesn't care about us, maybe Satan is right. But we know that's not the case. Unfortunately, what Satan has done was convince the vast majority of the world to believe that way, and he has completely ignored eternity. Paul went from the sacrifice 
which is able to save us from the predicament to the safety that we have because of that sacrifice, the security. And it is in that security where we find the answer to the third question. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What's the greatest thing that God has ever given us? Obviously it's his son. Paul's talking about that. He says, why are you worrying about the things of this life when he gave you the greatest gift? He's going from the greatest to the least. Surely he can take care of your other needs in this life. He gave you that which is most important. David said he's, he's uh, seen uh, uh, believers in God. He's seen the, the faithful grow old and be young. He said, I've never seen them wanting of bread. And that doesn't mean we're going to have everything in this life. But it does mean if we uh, seek after God in His righteousness first, God will bless us, Matthew 6, He's not going to give us everything we want in this life. He expects us to work as we're able to work. And here's what He will do is bless our effort. He'll bless our effort. That doesn't mean we have everything we want. Doesn't mean we're not inconvenienced at times. Doesn't mean sometimes we go without a few things, right? But it does mean that if we put in our part and we do what we're supposed to do, God will bless our efforts. And we have security in that, right? He's not indicating again. We're going to wake up and everything's going to be great. But He is indicating that if we seek God first... He'll give us what we need. I think one of the greatest acknowledgments of relying upon God and and understanding that He will give us what we need is found in Genesis 22, verse 16. In Genesis 22, verse 16, Abraham was willing to offer his only son Isaac. He didn't know whether or not that he would have to go through with that. He was willing to go through with it, but he understood that the God who promised him that son The God who gave him that son was the same God who could raise him up from the dead if he sacrificed him and he was willing to do it and was in the process of doing it and an angel from heaven stayed his hand. We have to understand how much God loves us and the sacrifice that he gave us and therefore we need to worry about seeking him instead of uh, material blessings. It's okay to have material blessings and it's okay to save up money and have nice things, but we can't allow that to be our main focus in life. Our main focus in life has to be seeking after God in His kingdom and living the way He wants, and He'll take care of the rest. Nothing better, in my opinion, than to see a faithful Christian do well in this life and even be wealthy. But Satan says God will not provide for His people, doesn't He? What does Satan say? You need to work every Sunday. You need to work all the time. And then when you're off, Sunday's your only day where you get to sleep late. You need to sleep in because God's not going to do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. That's what Satan says. That's not what the Lord said. Just seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We access the security of God first and foremost by obeying the gospel. And we know what that is. We understand that. We need to be able to tell other people about it But that's not what Satan says. Satan says, turn to me or turn away from God because he doesn't love you. He's not taking good care of you, right? He's not taking good care of you. But if we do that and we obey God and remain faithful, he will also preserve us to the end. That's our third and final point. God is our protector. He protects us and made plans for the predicament in which the world has found itself. 
and He will preserve us if we are faithful. Now, just as the false apostles accused uh, Paul, Satan continues to accuse Christians today. And if you notice, that's what they did. They went into Corinth and they began to say things about Paul. He wasn't available necessarily at the time to defend himself. He was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And they began to talk about Paul. They began to accuse him and point out some things. He didn't even charge you for coming here. Obviously, he's not a real apostle. He's doing it for free, right? And so that was one of the things that they used against Paul. Paul's not a not an eloquent speaker like we are. Well, Paul was an eloquent speaker. He just didn't use the, uh, the speech patterns of the day. He talked very clearly about what God offered and what God expected. But there is an answer. There is an answer. Because of Satan's accusations, Paul made this question or presented this question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, he answered it rhetorically, right? If God has forgiven us, God has justified us, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? He used that metaphor. It's a judicial metaphor. And what he's doing, he is presenting Satan for exactly what he is, the accuser of God's people, constantly accusing. Now, Satan doesn't want us to know that, right? He doesn't want us to understand He's constantly accusing us before God. But we see the judge sitting at the bench while the accuser comes in, the prosecutor, right? Standing before Him, presenting charges. Satan is identifying every wrong thing that's ever happened in our lives. doesn't matter when it happened, how it happened, whether or not we've been forgiven of it, He still drags it up and presents it to God. And he's constantly doing that. Notice what John wrote in the Revelation. He made a statement in Revelation 12, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuses them before our God day and night. For those who are faithful, the Bible makes it very clear. Satan is not able to accuse us anymore or at least he is unsuccessful in his accusations who can bring charges against the faithful no one no one no one can do that if we accept Christ's sacrifice we obey the plan of salvation we live faithfully for God no one can accuse us John talked about walking in the light first John 1 7 So we need to keep in mind, he's not talking about someone living in sin. He's talking about someone who sins on occasion. But even at that, even for someone who's walking in the light, someone who's been forgiven of past sins, Satan is still accusing, but Jesus continues to answer. Notice what the fifth question is. Satan's accusations in the faithful will be acquitted in the end. The fifth question, who is he that condemneth? In other words, after God has justified us, who can condemn us now? How does our uh, judicial system work in this nation? There's never really a final answer until you go through 27 different courts. You finally make it up to the Supreme Court. They put you off. It comes back. They put you off. Next quarter it comes in. They finally make a ruling on part of it. So it goes to a lower court. has to work its way through again. 
It gets back up to the Supreme Court if it ever makes it there. They have to rule on the other aspect of that law. Not so with God. There's no superior court. There's no appellate court. If God says someone is forgiven, if someone is acquitted, they are acquitted. And when He continually provides that sacrifice to take away sin, they are constantly being pronounced innocent. And so no one can successfully set aside that verdict. But that's not what Satan says. Satan says you're lost. You can never be forgiven. You've done things that are too terrible. I've talked with people before and they've just plainly told me I cannot be forgiven of the sins I've committed. I cannot be forgiven. I see God can forgive anybody. Let's not limit God. But we have to be willing to go before God in the proper way and ask for that forgiveness. Each time we sin, Satan returns to court. He returns and he brings another accusation against us. Even those who are walking in the light. And we're not talking about living in sin. Obviously, he doesn't even have to fool with that, does he? We're talking about people who are walking in the light, that make mistakes, have been forgiven a past sin, and he keeps bringing it up. Why does he do that? Satan wants to wear us down in this life. He wants to wear us down. He wants us to get to the point where we say, I just give up. I give up. The charge is brought. And what does Satan do? Demands, in his mind, justice, right? Demands justice. Because Satan understands God's laws as good as anybody does. He knows what God's Word is. He knows what it says in Romans 6.23. He understands that the recompense for sin is death. And so he demands death. He demands death. And that's where we have our mediator coming in, right? That's where we have our mediator. Uh, A mediator is someone who bridges the gap, right? Most often we hear about mediators through uh, company problems. You have a union, they go on strike. I think uh, uh, GM's on strike right now, at least they were the other day. And so uh, to work through that, they'll bring in a mediator. A mediator is a very special position. A mediator has to have both knowledge of management and of the, the hourly worker. Okay, They have to have been in both places. We only have one mediator in the spiritual realm. We have Christ who understands exactly what it means to be God and exactly what it means to be a human. And so he bridges the gap. He comes in and he says, that's right, sin deserves death. That's the proper punishment if we are going to be righteous and just. But it is at that point that the mediator stands beside the person being accused and he says, the price has been paid. Let's move on to the next thing, right? Move on to the next thing. And so, we need to be reminded, the writer of Hebrews made a very important statement to us. Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 5. He said, Let our conduct be without covetousness, Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The answer is he acquits us. God does. Satan can't do anything to us. No person can can, uh, kill us enough to make us turn away from God if we choose not to do that. The answer is, The faithful is acquitted. And His love for us is acknowledged in the sixth and last question. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? God's for us. He loves us. He's given us the avenue through which we can be saved. No one can take that away from us except ourselves. There are not enough troubles. There's not enough distress. There's not enough persecution. There's not enough famine. There's not enough nakedness. There's not enough perils. There's not enough threatenings of death that can keep us from being faithful to God. Satan understands that, but he gives the wrong answer. And so many people go to the wrong source and they receive that answer and they believe Satan. What does Satan say? Oh, you lost someone. You're having financial problems. There was a natural disaster. Destroyed everything you've got. You know, we think about uh, the, uh, was it the Bahamas where the hurricane came through? They've got another one coming through right on the tail end of what they had. Another storm coming through. What does Satan say? Blame God for that. If he loved you, wouldn't allow it to happen. Not enough peril, not enough trouble, not enough tribulation, not enough nakedness, not enough death to make us turn away from God. Satan says it's God's fault. He has the wrong answer. But when these things happen, it is natural sometimes to think maybe God isn't paying attention. Maybe God isn't watching after us. Maybe God doesn't love us any longer. And there's nothing can be further from the truth than that. God's always watching over His people. He wants us to be happy in this life physically. He wants us to have nice things. He wants us to be able to eat when we need to eat, to have the necessities of life. But those are all so secondary to what is really important. He wants us to be saved, and that is what Paul is talking about. Jesus said, John 10, 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The fact is that no one or no thing can separate us from God unless we separate ourselves. That's what the Galatians were in danger of doing. And that's why Paul told them, if you go back to the old law, you have fallen from grace. When we embrace the great blessings we have in Christ, we can clearly see through the lies of Satan. And we can understand he cannot answer the important questions in life. But God can. And He's left for us the way in which we can find those answers. We learn from the Bible that He's our protector from the predicament of sin, and He assures our preservation if we remain faithful. And that's what we need to take into our hearts. And we need to live every single day understanding that and living up to what God has asked us to say, to do. We can be certain heaven is our destination. No doubt about it. John said you can know that you know. We can know we're saved if we do what God's asked us to do. We understand the plan of salvation. We understand faith. We understand repentance and confession and immersion in water. But what we need to understand, maybe even more so than that, is once someone obeys the gospel, they need to maintain that faith and continually walk in the light. Now Satan tries to throw us off course and and we go for it. We, We fall for it a lot of the time. But we need to stand up to Him. We need to understand that He's lying to us. He doesn't know what He's talking about. He wants us to stumble. But God is always there to help pick us up if we allow Him. It's up to us. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation this night, you need to come back. If something's happened in your life, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.